Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you got your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 20. This is where we're at in the book of Revelation as we're finishing off the book. After this text, we'll go into 21 and 22, which talks about the New Jerusalem. But this is the final remaining text that's going to deal with a very difficult subject and a very hard subject when we're dealing with a lake of fire. The title of today's message is, When It's Time to Separate. And what you see from Scripture, that God has an endpoint. God has a finality to things. His grace does eventually run out with people. His mercy does run out, and eventually they have to pay the piper. There's an old sermon by R.G. Lee. You might have heard it, Payday Someday. Well, here's the payday. It's the lake of fire. And some of the things we're going to gain from this, believe it or not, in the doctrine of the lake of fire, the doctrine of eternal punishment, eternal torment, there is a lot of things you actually can learn not only about God, but can actually apply to yourselves. Because I want you to think about this in relational terms. God is showing us that he has an end point with people, that he's going to give them grace, he's going to offer love, he's going to offer mercy and compassion and all of that. But there comes a day where he says, enough, I'm done. I can't go any further with you. You're not coming back. And because you have reached a state that's corrupted, I must isolate you and I must quarantine you away from others and from me. And that place is the lake of fire. And in some of our lives, in our personal lives, I mean, obviously, you know, you got to bridge it down into your own personal life. There's a lot of us that are dealing with people in our lives that we probably need to separate from. That, you know, they're just knuckleheads. They're not ever going to get their act straight. We've gone on for years and years with the same antics. They're not changing. They don't show any proof of change. And at that point, you know, part of being a wise believer is knowing who to separate from and who to bond to. That's really what you're learning in your discipleship. And unfortunately, people hang on to people too long. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about the guy on the side of the street or acquaintances or people that you know at work. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about long-term people that you're in relationship with that this has gone on for 20 years, man. They're not coming back. They're not changing. And we just keep hoping that someday, someday, well, you're putting your hope in the wrong thing, in the wrong person. Your hope's supposed to be put in Jesus Christ. He won't disappoint you. People will. So some of the things you actually learn from the doctrine of hell actually really applies to life and how we deal with people and how far to go with somebody. And, you know, if someone's responding well, you continue on giving them mercy and grace and love. But if someone's rebelling and someone's in a bad attitude and, and they're in a protracted period of sin and a season of life, then you're supposed to get away from them. You're supposed to remove your fellowship from them because eventually bad company corrupts good character. And you become just like them. You become like the people you hang out with. There's no doubt about that. And you have to learn that. So you're going to learn a lot just looking at what God does to people and how much grace and mercy extends to them. And then when is it time to cut someone off? The doctrine of hell is a very difficult subject. There's no doubt about it. And people want to skirt around it right now. All the cults, in fact, almost every cult on the planet doesn't believe in this doctrine. They, they, they say there's no hell. I mean, all the way into the occult, 
that people who are channeling demons, the demons say there's no hell, there's no lake of fire, down to the Mormons, down to Jehovah Witnesses, down to every cult on the planet, New Age, you name it, all of them, including all the apostates like Rob Bell, deny the reality of the lake of fire, deny the reality of an eternal place of torment. But our Bible teaches it, and we can't get around it. It's in our text today. I read a story this week about C.S. Lewis walked into a church to hear a pastor preach about salvation. The pastor says, if you don't accept Jesus, there's going to be great eschatological consequences. Interesting way you put it. So C.S. Lewis caught the pastor at the end and talked to him. He says, by you saying great eschatological consequences, did you mean hell? And he goes, yeah. He goes, then why didn't you say it? And that's true. All the TV preachers don't talk about it, do they? You'll never hear out of Joel Osteen's mouth the reality of the lake of fire. You will never hear that. You will never hear about anyone that's trying to make people feel good, have the numbers, grow the church, you know, have more nickels and noses. You'll never, ever hear them talk about the lake of fire. Why? Because it makes people uncomfortable. And it should. It should. It's supposed to. It should scare you. If you're not a believer, if this doesn't scare you, I don't know what does. That's why it's in the Bible. That's why Jesus talked about it so much. It's one of the the, the main issues he kept referring to is Gehenna, the lake of fire. Well, let's dive in. Let's see what's in there. And let's see what it says. We'll start in chapter 20, verse 11. It says this. Then I saw a great white throne. Let's unpack that just a little bit. Everything is important here. The idea of great is that there's something here that's at such a high degree of importance, which means that it's referring to the final judgment, that this is the most important thing. And the idea that this great white throne, it's great because it is the highest authority in the universe. It is God's throne. And that's why it's great. It's white to symbolize holiness. Perfect justice of God is now getting ready to be met out. And it's a throne representing God's authority. Anytime you see throne, it means authority in the Bible. It is a literal throne, but it is the highest throne in the universe. By the way, this is why Jesus in John 5 says, All authority has been given unto me. The Father has given that authority to the Messiah. So the one seated on the throne is Jesus of Nazareth the second person of the Trinity, who will execute judgment into the lake of fire. Let me make a caveat before we go any further. There are basically three judgments you have to be aware of. There's the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, which is only for believers, rewards or loss of rewards. Then there's the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25 that determines who goes into the kingdom and who doesn't of the people who made it out alive through the tribulation. And then this one here is called the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment of the damned. This is the judgment of the unregenerated. This is the judgment of not only human beings, but Satan and all the demons. This is the big one. This is the one that sends people off into the lake of fire. So just, I don't want you to confuse this judgment with the bema seat of Christ 
or the sheep and goat judgment. Those are three separate different judgments. This judgment then comes at the end of the millennium. Christ will rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And then before we go into eternity, before there's a new heaven and a new earth created, he then sentences people to the lake of fire. So that's where we're at on the time scale, at the end of the millennium. Anyway, let's return back to the text. It says this, And him who sat on it, that's Jesus, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So basically what ends up happening is at the end of the millennial kingdom, the whole universe goes away. Earth is destroyed. The rest of the universe is destroyed. Everything that God had created. They say this is what they think the universe looks like. It's a big round globe. And we're somewhere in the middle of all that. And it's all tuned, fine-tuned for our existence, by the way. The way the Milky Way galaxies are formulated, our, our distance from the sun, everything in the galaxy is operating for life to happen on this place. Isn't that amazing? The whole universe is tuned for that. Well, if that's what the universe looks like and continues to expand, and Isaiah and all of them said it's rolled out like a sheet, expands. God then, at the end of the millennium, destroys all of it because he's going to create something new. John says this in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So he's going to recreate. Because why? This universe, our planet, is tainted by sin. It's polluted by sin. Not only the rebellion of the the angels, which a third rebelled with Satan against God. That polluted the universe. And we as human beings, all the way back to Adam, polluted the earth. So there needs to be a new heaven and a new earth. New, a new universe, and that's what God's doing. So, what he does is he gets rid of it all. So, where people are at, that's really hard for me to explain. I don't know where this judgment happens because the universe is gone. The, the planet Earth is gone. Everything is gone, and everyone is standing before God. And it's really conceptually hard to get our minds wrapped around when space and time and matter are gone. And we're just standing in front of God. Or we're there at this judgment. We're not being judged. We're watching it happen. And all the angels are watching this happen. But this is the judgment of the damned. And they're just standing there. And I don't really know how to explain where that's at with no space-time continuum. God exists in that area. Anyway, they flee away. And then in verse 12, it says this. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God. The idea of small and great means it doesn't matter what your background is. It didn't matter if you're not famous or famous. It doesn't matter if you're poor or rich. It doesn't matter if you're, you're powerful or not powerful or if you're moral or immoral. It doesn't matter. If you are not saved, you're standing before God at this judgment. And no one is exempt. And basically at this judgment, God will now determine the degree of torment that you will suffer in the lake of fire. This is not a decision of whether or not you got saved or not. That decision has already been made. And it gets made here on this planet. It gets made in your life. And this is the probationary period that you have. Hopefully you've made that. But then he goes into saying that the books are going to be opened. And it says this in the text. And the books were opened. 
plural. Notice there's plural books. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. When you see this in the text and it names the book of life, that means that's the predominant book. There's multiple books in there, but this is the predominant one. Okay. It's really not a book. It's a scroll. That's what it's referring to. It's a scroll. Things are written on scroll. That's, the very, that's very Jewish. But the first book it's named is the book of life. I'll talk about that in just a bit because there's multiple books. But notice, you go back to the text, it says this. And the books were opened, another book was opened, and the dead were judged. Notice this. According to their works, by the things which were written in the books. Now again, this is not a matter of whether or not someone has gotten saved. They're going to be judged by their works. Do you know why? Because they have decided that they think they're good enough to stand before God in their filthy righteousness. That their works are good enough and that God should accept them based on their works. So therefore they will be judged on their works. See, you and I, if we've made that decision for Christ, understand that we fall short. We can't work our way to heaven. We're not good enough. We've done bad things in our lives. We've done sinful things. And it only takes one sin to keep you out of heaven. Because you have to be perfect to get, to, to get into heaven. So if you're not perfect, what do you do? Simple. You accept the Messiah who was perfect, lived the perfect life you couldn't live, died on a cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven, and rose on the third day to give you life. It's that simple. But these individuals apparently don't want to make it that simple. They want to complicate things. They decide, I'm going to stand before God, and I I think he should accept me because I'm a good enough person. Good luck on that one. Good luck. Because the books will now be opened, and everything recorded that you have ever done will be revealed. Now, the thing about the books, people say, well, God's omniscient. Why does he need books? He doesn't need books. It's not just for him. It's for you and I, or not you and I, but them. It's for people. It's for angels. It's for the demons. It's for them. It's a written record of the people's lives. Everything has been recorded. Everything. Everything someone has said has been recorded. And it's in a book in heaven. So that there are a testimony, that there is a witness against the individual about what they claim to be and what they claim to do. It's all been written down by God. But this is what they decided to do. Now, couple things I want to mention. Daniel also mentioned in Daniel chapter 7 that the, there's multiple books. We have some ideas what these books are, and then some of them we take a guess at, but there's a plurality of books. The first one, as you saw mentioned, is the book of life. You can see this in Psalm 139, 16, Psalm 69, 28, and Revelation 3, 5. The book of life contains every person who was ever created, Every person that was born since Adam is in the book of life. But if they make a decision in this life to reject Jesus, their name is blotted out of the book of life. So the fact that if God looks at that book and their name is not in the book of life, it means they're not saved. Now, God knows it, but again, it's a testimony to them. That they rejected God. They rejected God's offer of salvation. The second book is what's called the Lamb's Book of Life. You can see this in Revelation 13, 8, 17, 8. The Lamb's Book of Life is if you do make a decision for Christ, 
Your name is put in the Lamb's book of life, and your name is left in the book of life. So your name will be written down twice in two different books. A third book that some theologians suggest, and again, this is conjecture, but I think there's some good warrant behind it. It's the book of witnesses. What do you mean? Well, what do you think these, what God's going to do with these individuals? He's going to go through how he witnessed to them. A lot of people claim, well, you didn't give me enough signs that you exist, so I don't believe. And God's going to go through what he did to witness to them. Let me give you a couple things of how God in Scripture witnesses to people all over the planet ever since humans have ever been created. And he will continue to do this. He does it through first, the first thing that is called general revelation. It's the witness of God embodied in things. The first thing is through nature. Creation testifies to a powerful creator. It doesn't give an exact who this creator is, but it does testify to anyone, any part of the world, at any point in time in history, that there's a creator. And you can see all the scriptures that are attached to that. If the individual responds and saying, okay, I see there's a God, who is this God? Then you'll see providence as well. Providence is found in observing history. People don't need to have a history book. They just need to see their own history, the history of mankind. And you can even study it if you want. But history shows that God is ruling over the affairs of men. Things just don't happen by coincidence. And even in people's lives, they will chalk things up to coincidence. It's not. It's providence. And, they don't, and that's a constant witness to them, by the way. And you can see all the scriptures that talk about God ruling in the affairs of man and that being a witness to them that their lives had purpose and there, it wasn't an accident and there, they weren't having coincidences happen in their lives. There was a reason things happened. The third thing, preservation. The scripture says that people should observe that the universe and humanity are supernaturally being preserved. As a human race, we should have been destroyed already by the things we do, but yet we continue to exist. For instance, look at the Jewish nation. How is it they exist and the Hittites don't? How is that? You could only explain the, explain the existence of Israel from a supernatural standpoint, that there's a Jew walking around on the planet, or at least... Now we have, uh, what, 12 million? That's, that's unbelievable. There, there's, no, there's no people, uh, you know, there's no Jebusites anymore. Supernatural. But also that, that uh, the universe is being preserved. You know that scientists don't know what's holding us all together? They don't know what's holding the universe. They, they call it black space or whatever. They don't know. They just say it's there. It's kind of some type of thing that's holding everything, holding the atoms and, and, and neutrons together from just going crazy. And they don't know how to explain it. But Scripture explains it very clearly that it's Jesus holding everything together. And that, that will be part of what God will bring to people and saying, you had this. And why didn't you respond? See, all these things that are there are to cause people to seek him. And the last one is this one. This is a biggie. This is people's conscience. The eternal law of God is written on everyone's heart and convicts them. Everybody has this. 
I saw a great example of this when I went to Africa one time, and I thought, wow, I'm really going to have to explain what it means to be you know, a sinner and stuff like that. And I really was perplexed that I don't know how I'm going to get that across. I'm going to spend a lot of time convincing the people in Uganda who live in mud huts that they're a sinner. And guess what? I didn't have to. I told them they're a sinner and that Jesus wants to save them. And guess what? They knew they were. They, yep, yep, I am. They knew it. How did they know it? How did some dude in a mud hut in Africa has never heard the gospel know he was a sinner? Because of that. Everybody understands that there's a moral law. Everyone gets that. Now, they can suppress that, and they become dull to it, but they know that stealing is wrong, that murder is wrong, that coveting is wrong. People know that. It doesn't matter. That goes across cultures. That goes across uh, time. It's on their hearts, and it bears witness to them. That's why everyone who's not saved feels guilty. They feel guilt. It's real guilt. It's godly guilt, and it should lead to repentance. But they, what they do is try to satisfy that guilt in different ways, becoming religious, becoming spiritual, or doing a lot of good things to ease their conscience, ease their guilt. But the guilt's there. And if they would take that guilt to Jesus, he would take it away from them. But they won't. They want to handle their guilt their own way. Rest assured, if you have had a loved one die and go to hell, they had this all their life. This was God's constant witness to them. Now, if they will respond to general revelation, I feel guilty, I know there's a creator, I have broken his laws, what can I do? If you respond to that light, you will be given more light. And that light will be special revelation. And that special revelation is through the scriptures. And that's probably one of the other books that is going to be used, more than likely. And so the scriptures then become a fourth book. So if you can watch how the court scene would go, it would go something like this. You didn't respond to general revelation, or maybe they did. And you move down the path, you move down the path, and then it sounds like you, you, you responded well, and then I moved you over into giving you specific revelation about Jesus and my son and how to be saved and how to understand things. But at that point, even if people are given specific revelation from God, a missionary goes and shares the gospel or whatever, or they're here in America, but they turn from that revelation to maybe twisting the scripture or they join a cult or they reject it outright even if they hear the gospel, then that's where the rejection comes from. They reject general and they reject specific. If you don't respond to general, you will not be given specific. None of these are guarantees for salvation, but it is God's witness to humanity and he has done a great job of doing that. The point, general revelation is sufficient as a witness to prompt a person to seek those who seek who this God is and how to be saved, but it's insufficient to give specific revelation concerning who is this God or who God is and the content of the gospel. General revelation is also sufficient to condemn a person to hell, eventually the lake of fire. If a person responds correctly to the information from general revelation, God will ensure that they receive specific revelation. Here's the point. No one is without excuse. No one. 
The argument that gets foisted on us all the time. Well, what about the pygmy in Africa that have never heard any? What about the guy living in a tree in the Amazon? Wrong. Everybody on this planet has been given a chance to see general revelation. There's a creator. My conscience bears witness. I see providence in my life. I see all this. And that should cause them to seek specific revelation. But, like Romans 1 says, if they don't, they will start worshiping the creation rather than the creator. If they do respond, God will get them a missionary there. God will even send angels. He'll have dreams, visions, anything to get them saved. And people on the mission field that want to be saved are given specific revelation. Many times they're having dreams and visions of angels or Messiah himself shows up. And that's how a lot of people are getting saved where there's no missionary, where there's no Bible. I mean, I, I used to know a Cambodian pastor who had that very thing happen to him. He was getting ready to get killed in the killing fields and they were lining all the people up there to shoot them in the back of the head. And he was the last one in the line. And they were just going down the line in the killing fields in Cambodia and just killing people. Boom, 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 right down the line. And they got to him and guess what? They ran out of bullets. He said they had been shooting monkeys on the way, taking them over there and they ran out of bullets. So they hit him on the back of the head and knocked him out. At that point when he woke up, he was still a Buddhist but he looked around creation at that point after being almost killed, and he says, if there's a God there, will you make yourself available to me so I can know who you are? That's all he prayed. He didn't know who he was praying to, but he knew some, someone's out there. And I want to know, a Buddhist is an atheist, by the way. Buddhism believes in atheism. That's, that's, there's no God in Buddhism. So he responded to this light of creation. And so he picked himself up, and he went through the Cambodian jungle, and I think he said he made it to Tibet, or somewhere on the border. And he says once he got to the border, he ran into a missionary. And that, and that missionary gave him the content, specific revelation of how to be saved. In that short of time, he responded to the creation. There's a creator. He knew he was guilty, he said. And God got him to that missionary to give him the message of salvation. He got saved and he became a pastor here in the States. So I've even seen it in someone's life. So this argument, well, what about these people that don't, need, that don't hear about Jesus? Look, they will hear about him if they respond to general revelation. If they turn to creation, start worshiping the, cre the creature rather than the creator, they will not get specific revelation. So if someone dies in a remote part of the world without hearing Christ, it's not an accident. They are not getting specific revelation because they have rejected general revelation. That's how it works. God is fair. He has no partiality. He will make himself known if you do seek him. And he does it through theophanies, miracles, direct communication, face-to-face. -face. The Bible records all this through angels, audible voices, dreams, vision. You see it all through the Bible, how he communicated with people. And now he communicates to us who are written revelation scriptures. We have plenty. There is no excuse. The last book that's theorized that possibly could be used is the book of works or book of deeds. And because these people decide to stand in front of God in their own filthiness, in their own rags, in their own works, then God's going to examine those deeds. 
And basically what they're going to be told is you fall short. Now, understand, Jesus mentions that there's degrees of torment in the lake of fire. Not everybody will experience the same kind of lake of fire. They will be there, but some will have a worse lake of fire than others, depending on their works, because they decide to go on their works. Okay, so basically it's like this. Hitler would have a worse lake of fire than the garden variety moralist in Bakersfield, if that makes sense. They both will be in the lake of fire, but one will be experiencing a worse type of torment than the other. So believe it or not, there are degrees of torment in hell. Wow. Let's go back to the text. It says, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. The idea of death and Hades is being used as a euphemism. Death refers to the body or where their bodies are buried, and Hades refers to where souls are. So right now, when someone dies, we bury their body in the earth, and their soul goes to Hades if they're unregenerate. Notice it says the sea gave up the dead. So those who weren't buried in the earth, the sea gives them back to the Lord. So the idea is that God reconstitutes their body and brings their soul back out of Hades, out of hell, and puts their soul and body back together. So there, uh, understand that Jesus taught, and the scriptures teach this, that there is a resurrection of the damned, a resurrection to condemnation. Daniel mentions this in Daniel chapter 12, and Jesus mentions this as well. There's a resurrection to condemnation. This resurrection is not a glorification like we will experience as believers. It is getting their body prepared to live in eternity in the lake of fire where the worm is not consumed. They will have a body that is not consumed by the fire. And their soul and body will come together because that's what they did their deeds in. So they must be judged in their body. And then he goes, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. That's how you want to play the game? Then fine, God will judge you on your works instead of by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And they will all stand there and explain to God why they did what they did. Wow. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Again, death and Hades are being used as a euphemism in this text, and it refers to their body and soul. So basically, at that point, their works don't measure up because you have to be 100% perfect in keeping all of the law of God. And therefore, because they fall short, both their body and soul that has now been reunited is cast into the lake of fire to be eternally separated from God eternally. John says that this is the second death. The second death. We can have physical death, which is the first death. We physically die. But if you're a believer, you will not be harmed by the second death. The second death is to be cast into the lake of fire. Understand, this is a Hebraism, a a Hebrew idiom. Death never means the cessation of the individual. That's Greek thought. That's pagan thought. In the Hebraic mind, in the biblical mind, death always means separation. Separation. So if the rapture doesn't happen and we die, 
What will happen is our soul will separate from our body. Our soul will go to be with the Lord, and our body will stay in the ground until it's resurrected. Eventually, at the rapture, our bodies will come back, and our soul will come back into our body, and we will be given a glorified body at that point in time. The second death is a separation, but it's not a separation of the soul and body because he puts them back together, as you can see in the text. It's a separation from God for all eternity in the lake of fire. So they will be permanently, eternally, from everlasting to everlasting, out of God's presence forever. And forever in this Greek, guess what it means? Forever. I know people don't want to think it like that, and it's hard to get our minds around it, but no one wants to think about forever, especially in this situation. And he goes, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, the issue is, this is God's justice. But note this. It's the ultimate in human dignity and freedom. What? It's the ultimate in love. How is it the ultimate dignity, the ultimate freedom, the ultimate love, which God bestows on his creatures? We are not robots, automatons, like the Calvinists want to say. We are given free will, and that's the liability we all have, that we can go our own ways, that we can turn from God. That's the dignity we hold. Did he know Satan was going to fall? Absolutely. But he created him with that free will. Did he know What would happen to the masses of humanity? The the mass of humanity would reject him. Of course he did. But in giving us the idea of being made in his image gave gave us that dignity of freedom. That's exactly what he has given people. He's given them their dignity. And their freedom demands it. And that's a hard concept to think about. That hell honors human dignity? Yes, because it allows decision. And that's really hard to understand. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked. You know that. But he will honor their decision. And that's why I think it's apropos for people to understand that hell itself is locked from the inside. People put themselves there. God doesn't want them to go there. But they leave him no choice. They act in such a way to spurn the grace and mercy and the love he offers. What else is he going to do with them? Do not think he's going to annihilate them. Annihilation is from the cults. The Jehovah Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, all preach annihilation, which is dead wrong. Because if he annihilates his creatures, he's practicing euthanasia on his own creatures. He still sees his creatures as valuable. That's why he doesn't destroy them. Yes, could God annihilate us? Of course he could. He called us into existence. He could call us out of it. But he doesn't. Because even in their corrupt state that they're in, they're made in his image. And they're still of value because of that dignity and worth that he has put in them. And he's not going to do that. Hence, that's why their confinement in the lake of fire is forever. 
He has given them their human dignity. Wow. Yeah. I like what Dr. Norman Geisler said about hell. He said this, God cannot force free creatures to be reformed. Forced reformation is worse than punishment. It is cruel and inhumane. At least punishment respects the freedom and the dignity of the person. I think that's fantastic. That's exactly what we're seeing in Scripture. And as you know, this place called the Lake of Fire was not created specifically for us. It was created for the devil and his angels to be quarantined forever. But then, of course, the fall happened, and here we go. And so we end up in the same place if we don't accept Jesus Christ. Jesus likened it to Gehenna. Let me show you a picture of Gehenna. This is in Jerusalem. It's a small little valley on the other side of the Temple Mount. And Jesus referred to the Lake of Fire as Gehenna. Gehenna is the proper name. Lake of Fire is the descriptive name. But Gehenna is the proper name. What that means is in the Valley of Gehenna, in Israel's history, this is where they committed human sacrifice with children. And then they would burn them there. And it became a very wicked place, an idolatrous place. that The Jews were offering up their children to Moloch and burning them alive. And, and, and then what ended up happening, it became desecrated. And this became Israel's dump, their trash dump. Because no one wanted to be there because of all the child sacrifice that had happened. And Jesus used it for the proper name of the lake of fire because you would go and dump your trash there and then they would burn your, the trash and this, the, the smoke would always burn in this area of Jerusalem because the trash being burned. But then at the same time, you had this trash there. You had maggots working through everything and they would eat the flesh and, and it was just a, a nasty place. And, and so there was maggots there. There was fire there. There was smoke there. There was garbage there. And it was a place of evil. And he says, that's the lake of fire. What do you mean by that? Well, it says in the scripture, Jesus will say, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body or destroy the body. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body, which is referring to God, which is referring to the lake of fire. What do you mean by destroy, Jesus? Does that mean annihilate? No, it does not. The Greek does not mean annihilate. It means ruination. Ruination. That what they were created for is now ruined and tarnished, and they're going to be put in the trash heap of Gehenna. And they're in a ruined state. It's not that they don't exist. It's just they're in a ruined, destroyed state. It's like having a light bulb and you drop in the light bulb and it hits the ground and it shatters everywhere. Well, we would ask, is the light bulb, does the light bulb still exist? Yeah, it still exists, but it's in a ruined state. And that's how Jesus tried to describe the lake of fire. People are in there in a ruined state. Jesus also mentioned that there's degrees of torment. He told the cities he was ministering to, he said this, he goes, Woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works which were done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And then he goes on, he says, And you, Capernaum. That was his headquarters, is Capernaum. 
who are exalted to heaven because Messiah actually did miracles right there in front of the people there in Capernaum. He says, we'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you have been done in Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Oh my. Oh my. The people who saw Jesus, saw what he did, saw the miracle, saw him in the flesh, their lake of fire is worse than the Sodom and Gomorrah people? Yeah. Do you know why? Light. Truth. To whom much is given, much will be required. Who do you think is going to have a worser time in the lake of fire? Someone in Bakersfield that has a church on every corner, they can go to Walmart and buy a, a Bible for a dollar, and has more light given to them, and they sit at home never wanting Jesus. They don't have anything to do with them. They're flat out either agnostic or atheist by choice. And there's churches everywhere that can tell them the truth. Is he going to have a more tolerable time in the lake of fire or the dude in the Amazon River that's, that's living in a tree that rejects general revelation? I can tell you who's going to have a harder time. The guy in Bakersfield will. Because the guy who's rejecting general revelation, he's still going to the lake of fire, but he doesn't have specific revelation like the guy in Bakersfield. Oh, that's why he said that. To whom much is given, much will be required. That determines your degree of punishment in hell. Oh. And then Jesus used another term. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a Middle Eastern term, a Jewish idiom. They used it. A lot of the Middle East uses the term weeping and gnashing of teeth. You've got to check the context every time it's used to understand where it's talking about because sometimes it's referring to believers weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this sense... In Matthew 13, he's talking about unbelievers weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? For all eternity, these people who go to the lake of fire will experience this. This is what weeping and gnashing of teeth mean. Extreme emotional regret, anguish, remorse, rage, horror over lost opportunities, mental anguish, abiding loss. And it's that feeling they will have over and over and over again without end. Because they missed their opportunity. They could have accepted Christ. But instead they wanted to live the way they wanted to live. And not bow a knee to Jesus. And God will then honor that. But you're not going to go escape and think, well, I'm just going to have a big party with my friends in hell. Have you heard people talk like that? They're stupid. They don't even know what they're talking about. when they, That's nonsense. They're going to be burning in a lava pit forever. Forever. And the mental anguish, they're not having no party there, will be isolated by themselves thinking what they did in this short period of time in life. They thought they were going to live forever. They didn't think they were going to die. And now they meet the maker. and He has no other place to put them other than in the lake of fire. Let me make this caveat before we get into the application. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear a message on hell, that's a wake-up call, man. If you haven't done business and made your peace with God, now is the time. It's simple. It's this simple. A child can understand it. 
We're sinners. We've broken God's law. God's law requires absolute 100% perfection. If you're not 100% perfect, you're not getting in. Therefore, God sent his son 2,000 years ago to live a life that you and I couldn't live 100% perfect. They couldn't accuse him of doing any sin because he's a perfect sacrifice. Goes to the cross, dies for our sins, not his, because he's perfect. He's the ultimate sacrifice. Dies for our sins, resurrects on the third day, and now says, if you will simply believe in me that I am God who came in the flesh and died for your sins and believe the work I did for you on the cross, all you need to do is believe that and you will be saved. It's that simple. It's that simple a child could understand, but yet the masses of humanity reject it. Yes, you can't work your way to heaven. There's nothing good that you can do. Now, what we do as, as after salvation is we, we work in, in terms of gratitude for what he has done, not to earn anything. He says, if you accept my son, you have my favor. I will remove this from you, your sins, as far as the east and the west, and I will declare you clean by the blood of the Messiah. Now, I'm, I'm assuming you have done that business, but you, if you haven't, you need to do that. And again, it's not some fancy prayer you need to say. You, we offer an opportunity for people to walk an aisle and, and talk to our people and, and walk through that and, and, and pray to receive Christ. But you can do it right in your seat. The Philippian jailer told Paul, what shall I do to be saved? And, and Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. That's it. Here's the deal. A lot of people are going to stand before God and he's going to say, remember when I sent that guy to you to talk to you? Remember when I, you, you had that track that was given to you? Remember that preacher that, that, that talked to you? Remember this? Remember that guy, that neighbor? Yada, yada, yada. He's going to point out the hundreds of times that people tried to talk to them and they rejected it. Another point of application. Now we'll get personal with us. This idea of separation. This is the ultimate boundary, by the way. It's the ultimate in containment of someone that's running roughshod and doing evil and hurting other people. And so if you want to learn boundaries, boy, the lake of fire is a boundary. You can't get any bigger boundary than that. But what is going on here? Some things you can take away from the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of the lake of fire. Notice that God separates people that don't want to be with him. Notice that. They're choosing not to be with him. They don't want to be with him. For them, think about this, to be with him would be hell for them. So he gives them what they want. You don't want to be with me? I'll make a place for you, and you can be out there by yourself without me for all eternity. And I want you to think about this in your relationships with people, especially the ones that you know are are a thorn in your side and giving you fits. At some point, you're going to have to separate. At some point. Because they're doing harm to you. They don't want to be with you. And that's a hard pill to swallow. When people that you love don't want to be with you. Now God loves everybody, but people don't want to be with them. Think about that on a human level. Who do you keep reaching out to and you love them, but they don't love you back? When are you going to wake up and say, hey, you know what? (laughs) There's got to be a two-way street here. Yeah, they don't love you. Let them go. It's time to separate. The other thing you, get, you see from God is this. He puts them in a place of confinement, the lake of fire, to keep them from hurting people. Because as you know, when they were here, that's all they did. 
Like Hitler, for instance, or something like that, right? And you think about this on a relational term. Oh, I need to separate from people that are hurting other people? Yeah. Because you keep the relationship going with them, but at the same time, they're not only hurting you, they say, well, it's okay if they hurt me. Yeah, but they're hurting everyone else around you. And because you don't separate from them, they're hurting your kids, they're hurting the, the cousins, you're hurting your mom and dad, they're hurting everybody because their presence is hurtful. See, safe people protect others. God's safe. He protects others. So he separates them from the rest so they won't hurt anyone else. Huh. God also puts a limit on what he will deal with. He puts a limit. He puts a limit on rebellion and lawlessness. And that ultimately, that's the limit. No more. I'm done with this. You're not going to act this way. And you and I have to understand that limit as well in our own lives. We have to put limits on people. Hey, you just can't, can't, can't keep acting this way. So you separate from lawless individuals. And notice this. It defines God for us. Hell defines God for us. Well, what do you mean? Defines God. It shows you his nature, that he's holy and just and righteous. See, he's not some doting grandfather that turns a blind eye to what people are doing. He's seeing everything what people are doing, and he's saying, enough, I'm done. And by the way, the people you keep company with, especially those in rebellion, define you. It defines what you will tolerate. It defines what you will put up with. Now, I'm not saying that you... I'm talking about these, these relationships that you know are toxic. Understand me, right? I'm not talking about every relationship. The relationships that are toxic. What does it say about you if you keep putting up with toxic people? It means your standards are very low. God's standards are up here, and it says, I will tolerate nothing like this. I'm putting an end to it. Enough is enough. His holy standards are there, and you can see it with the doctrine of hell. Where are yours? Who you put up with will show your standards to everybody. Let me finish on the story, because I always want to balance out the lake of fire or hell with understanding what God is providing right now. I'm going to tell you a story about a father and a son. This father was an operator for one of those drawbridges. You ever seen a drawbridge where a train goes over the top of it, and then underneath it there's a canal or a river, and the boats will go underneath them? And he was an operator of one of these. So every day the father would get up, go to work, climb all the way in this tower, and operate the drawbridge. He would hear the whistle blowing down the track, and when he heard that whistle, he had to lower the drawbridge. And then the train would go right over into the city, and they didn't have to raise it up any time a boat came through. And he did this day in, day out. Every day, though, his little boy came to him and said, Daddy, can I go to work with you today? Can I go to work with you? And he would say, No, son, it's too dangerous. When you're older, I'll let you go. I'll let you go. And the boy just was persistent. He kept going, and years went by, and the boy finally got a little older. And he pestered his dad, and, and the dad said, all right, you can come with me today, I guess, but you've got to be real careful, but I'll show you how I operate the drawbridge. So he went with him. And uh, 
they both climbed that tall ladder to where the operating deck was, and it sat above the bridge, and, and he, the father and the son could see everything, the whole bridge and the train tracks and where the boats went through, and it, it was quite impressive. And the dad was showing him all the levers and all the buttons and everything in the control panel there in front of him, and his son was just amazed that his dad could control the drawbridge. And anyway, a red light popped on on one of the panels, and uh, the dad saw it and he says, son, I need to go fix this. There's something not right in the gear section. And so um, I need to go check on this. Stay right here. Don't leave. I'll be right back. So the father came out of the operating booth there and went down the stairs and went into the gearbox area. And the son couldn't see him. And so the son, out of curiosity, decided just, well, I'll just follow my dad. So he went down the stairs and went into the gearbox. Well, the dad came back. And he had fixed whatever the problem was. And he climbed back up, went into the, the kind of the crow's nest, the way that it was shaped. And he, the son wasn't there. The son wasn't there. He started start panicking. Where did he go? Where did he go? And he looked down, and he can see in the gearbox, his son was inside the gearhouse. Right there were all the gears where the, the whole thing lowers and lifts. And his son's right down in there. The same time he saw his son, the whistle from the train was blowing. And that meant he had to make a decision at that point in time about what he's going to do. Because he knows that the train is approaching and it has hundreds of people commuting into the town. If he doesn't lower that drawbridge, hundreds of people will go off into the canal and die. But if he lowers the drawbridge to save them, he will end up crushing his son. And that decision was there, and it seemed like time slowed down. He knew it was about to happen. So the dad makes a decision. He gets the lever, and he pulls the lever to lower the drawbridge with his son in the gearhouse. At that time, he puts his, hand, his head in his hands, and he goes down like this and he's just he can't even imagine what's getting ready to happen because his son's going to be crushed under the gearbox and so he's sitting there and he sits there until the thud of the bridge comes down and then he looks up and he knows what has happened and he watches this train go by and he can see inside the windows it was almost like slow motion and there's people in there drinking coffee there's businessmen reading the newspaper there's children on, a play, on another area playing games and laughing. And the whole time the train's going over, they have no idea that they came this close to death. That close. No one knew except the father in the booth they had crushed his own child to save hundreds of lives that would never know it. That story has parallels in some respects, but not all respects, to what God did. In this story that I gave you, it was an accident that the boy got in there. It was no accident that Jesus went to the cross. It was planned before the foundation of the world. If we're going to create these human beings, we've got to make a way of salvation for them because they will fall. Unlike the story where everyone on the train didn't know what happened, didn't know their lives had preserved. Unlike that, 
the truth of Scripture says everybody knows. There's no one without excuse. Everybody knows what God did if they respond to the light that's been given to them. That's how the story is different. It was no accident. It was pre-planned. And God has made everyone aware of what he has done to provide the way of salvation. I pray you have made that decision. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.